Welcome to Behind the Page, the Eli Marks podcast, with your hosts, John Gaspard and me, Jim Cunningham. Hey there, Jim. Hi, Jono. How are you? I am good. We are, uh, with the end of this episode, we'll be semi-officially done with the first half of season three. Wait a minute. Are you saying we are halfway through season three? Well... At the end of this episode, which is episode six, season three, uh, in theory, we have 12 episodes this year. There's going to be 24 next year. So just hold your horses, people. But there's 12 this year. I think there might be a little bonus at the end of this year, which would give us the lucky 13. So probably a bit of a surprise at the end of the year, a little bonus. But for the most part, at the end of this episode, we will be halfway through. And we've got a really fun episode this time around. For our guest, we have Dr. Reed Quinton. He's a medical examiner and a magician. What a what a fascinating guy. And really, there were, I don't know, two or three things that he th- th- mentioned about his work that I was like, really? Well, yeah. you, uh, uh, I'm so used to seeing that on the TV with medical examiners. I can't believe you don't do that. You, you, you listeners would be amazed at the myths that he busts. But before we get to him, we're going to listen to our uh, Eli Mark short story for this episode that is called The 38 Steps. I don't want to give away any spoilers in the story, but I will say that those 38 steps do exist here in Minneapolis, just as Eli will describe them. They're at the corner of Penn Avenue South and Lake Harriet Boulevard. They go, if not straight down, pretty close to straight down. Uh, they're the closest thing the Twin Cities have to the Georgetown Steps from the Exorcist. Jim, have you, have you ever seen the Georgetown Steps? I have, actually. Uh, a couple of years ago, um, two of my high school buddies and I, we went to a, a military school yeah. that, that, uh, that has uh, bonded us as uh, former classmates beyond, I think, what the normal high school experience might do for you. How many of your high school friends do you still hang out with? Uh, very few of them, but then, yeah. uh, it was not a military school. It was, exactly. it was, it was barely a school. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, it really was a great experience and I am in touch with, um, all of my high school buddies on a regular basis, but a couple of them I travel with and we go on these ghost tours. And so we had, we're on our way to Gettysburg and, uh, I said, let's go to DC first. So we went to D.C. and hung out. And one of the things I did was take a look at those Georgetown steps Uh, up and down those steps twice was way more than I should have attempted. Yeah. 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 It's um, even during the daytime, they're a little bit spooky. When I saw them, I was in the area shooting a, a video for a client and the guy who was shooting it, our DP, had picked me up. And we were driving to the location. And as we turned the corner, I said, are those the Georgetown steps? He said, they are indeed. And let me tell you, when I was younger, a buddy and I uh, had been out drinking in the middle of the night. And we decided to climb those steps. And there is only one light in the middle. There's a light at the bottom. And there's a light at the top. There's only one light in the middle. And we got up to the middle of those stairs. And that light went out. And we scurried back down the stairs, did not go back up again. So yeah, don't play gravity in those situations. Don't let it work for you if you're being chased by a ghost. Yeah, there are other stairs in the Twin Cities area that are probably longer and maybe steeper. I think there's one in St. Paul down by the river, but they have landings. So you really don't go straight down. You just, you, there's a bunch of steps and then the landing, a bunch of steps and then the landing. 
Uh, but the ones that we use in the story here go straight down and they don't even bother shoveling them in the winter. They just shut up, shut it off from both ends and say, find another way to get down there because they're just, they're crazy. So with that in mind, with that picture in your mind, let's just step away for a moment and listen to Jim Cunningham reading The 38 Steps. The 38 Steps. Has there ever been a 4 a.m. phone call that was good news? Possibly. Like being awakened from a sound sleep to be told you've won the Nobel Peace Prize. But even then, I'm sure there are plenty of Nobel laureates who would have happily waited until a more reasonable hour to receive such delightful information. From the moment I was rudely awakened, I had no reason to think this call was from the Nobel Committee or that it would be delightful and the ringtone supported that belief. It was from my ex-wife. After I'd gotten remarried, I had switched her tone from a song snippet, The Rolling Stones, It's All Over Now, to a more discreet yet still distinctive ring. The settings on my iPhone informed me the tone I selected was technically called Old Phone. Whoever was in charge of naming ringtones had nailed it on that one. It sounded exactly the way phones did when Deirdre and I had first met, so it seemed a fitting choice for her blessedly infrequent calls. Sorry to bother you so early, she said after I finished fumbling and finally answered, yet her manner didn't suggest she was in the least bit apologetic. That would have been out of character for Deirdre. She's no-nonsense times ten. Fred needs to talk to you. The Fred she was referring to is her newish husband, homicide detective Fred Houghton. She had hyphenated when they'd gotten hitched, giving her a moniker that always made me smile. Assistant District Attorney Deirdre Sutton Houghton. Sometimes the universe has a sense of humor. Then why didn't homicide detective Fred Houghton place this call? My voice came out thicker than anticipated. I think I was clinically still asleep. He thought it was too early. He was right, and yet you clearly felt no such compunction. Not in the least. And why did your husband feel this need, albeit via surrogate, to call me? There's a body in the morgue that came in overnight, a John Doe, she said. Fred took a look through the guy's pockets. We think he may be a friend of yours. How do you figure? It will make more sense once you're here. Sure thing. How does noon sound? I'll see you in 30 minutes. Before I could generate the beginnings of an argument she had already hung up, I set the phone down as I struggled to sit up. What was that? Megan's voice came from deep within her pillow. I have to go to the morgue. Do we need anything? At the morgue? What do you mean? You're dreaming. Go back to sleep. I didn't have to suggest this twice. Before I'd even found my pants, she was already snoring quietly. Although there had been talk for years about moving the crowded Hennepin County morgue from downtown Minneapolis out to the suburbs, that relocation had yet to occur. The drive was simple and straightforward. There was no traffic to speak of at this hour, and parking was plentiful. 
I had to ring the bell to gain entrance to the old two-story building. Once I was buzzed in, I nearly ran right into Deirdre. You made good time. It helps if 99% of all drivers are home and asleep. What did you want me to see? By way of response, Deirdre turned and headed down a dimly lit corridor. Her heels made a clacking sound that echoed annoyingly through the building, although I imagine most of the occupants didn't really care one way or the other at this point. I scurried to catch up. Around midnight, someone discovered a body on the bike path which runs around Lake Harriet. The victim appeared to have fallen down the stairs, the ones that lead down from Penn Avenue. I know those stairs. They're like the stairs from The Exorcist, only scarier. They're really steep and deadly. Well, they certainly were last night. She made a sharp right into a large and under-illuminated office. Through glass windows in the back of the room, I could see a brightly lit exam room. Homicide detective Fred Hutton was in conversation with a stern-looking woman in a white lab coat. So is this considered a homicide? Deirdre shrugged. Right now, it's in that fuzzy gray area. For the time being, we're calling it a suspicious death. It would help if we knew who he was. And you think I knew him? The district attorney's office has its suspicions came a booming, if dull, voice. Homicide detective Fred Hutton had stepped into the room. He was holding a plastic evidence bag. We in homicide aren't yet quite as persuaded. The only thing they found on the guy was a small silk coin purse, Deirdre said, as she gestured at the item in the bag her husband was holding. After a nod from her, he pulled it out and placed it in the palm of his gloved hand. I'm not familiar with that coin purse, I began, but Deirdre held up a silencing hand. The detective snapped the purse open and pulled out a single coin. Even from a few feet away, it was pretty clear what it was. And I certainly don't recognize that quarter, I said. Forty minutes ago, I had been sound asleep, and now I was here and didn't know why. Irritated didn't begin to cover what I was feeling. Turn it over, Deirdre instructed. Her husband did as he was told. I leaned in closer. It's a quarter with writing on it. Those are your initials, Deirdre said, E and M in black magic marker. Okay, I'll give you that, but surely there are other people with the initials EM, I said. EM Forrester comes immediately to mind. Edvard Munch, Ethel Merman, E.G. Marshall, when he was in a rush, Ed Marlowe. Who's Ed Marlowe? A friend of my Uncle Harry's from Chicago, I explained. A terrific magician. Actually, he called himself a cardition because he mainly worked with playing cards. You know that one move I do, the snap change? He developed that along with, it's your initials, she said sharply, cutting me off. I recognize them. I certainly saw them enough on legal documents. I looked down at the coin again. The letters did have a familiar aura to them. From the mortgage on our house, right? We must have initialed those things 50 times. I was thinking more of the divorce papers, she said. It's a more indelible memory. But regardless, those are your initials. And I know you do at least one trick which requires someone to put their initials on a quarter. I certainly saw it enough. Well, then, 
perhaps you might recall that in that trick, I get the spectator to put their initials on the coin, I said, feeling myself slipping right back into our standard argument format. I resisted the urge to dive in head first. It would hardly be all that magical if I make it disappear and reappear with my own initials on it. Following that logic, I might as well go ahead and sign my own name on all my playing cards. I understand that, Deirdre snapped. She took a cleansing breath and continued. There must have been a point when, when someone else did the trick for you and you signed the quarter. I have no memory of anyone ever doing a trick for me that involved a signed quarter. Well, maybe not, but it certainly must have been memorable for this guy. This came from homicide detective Fred Hutton, who had been watching us impassively. The victim kept it in a very expensive coin purse, and he had it on him when he died. In fact, it was the only thing he was carrying. That traditionally suggests there was a strong sentimental value attached to the object. Eli, they've run fingerprints and facial recognition on this guy, and they're coming up with nothing, Deirdre said. She wasn't pleading with me, but she was getting as close to it as she was ever likely to get. Can you recall any instance when you signed a quarter with your initials for someone? I was about to say no, but then I was hit with a sudden memory. There had been one instance. I was doing a trick with a sugar packet, Very Sweet by David Gabay, and I asked my spectator for a quarter. He said that not only did he not carry money, but he also made a point of never, ever signing his name to anything. I don't know why I hadn't thought of it earlier. He was more than just memorable. He was absolutely terrifying, and he was also the best audience for magic I'd ever had. I know who it is, I said. Mr. Lime? Deirdre repeated, but I thought he didn't exist. I looked down at the corpse on the table in front of me. Well, he doesn't exist anymore, but this is definitely him. He was covered by a sheet with only his head visible, but I recognized him instantly. Pale, nearly translucent skin pulled tightly around his skull. Gray hair speckled with gray, if that was even possible. His mouth was closed, and mercifully so were his eyes, but if his thin lips had been peeled back, I'm sure his teeth would be just as yellow as the last time I'd seen him. When was the last time I'd seen him? I certainly remember the first time. I'd been tricked into thinking I was heading into a gig at a mansion on Lake of the Isles, only to find myself performing for a creepy old man in a dark and mammoth living room. A handful of other encounters followed, each more terrifying than the last. It wasn't that he ever threatened me personally. It was, instead, the persistent feeling that things would be very negative for anyone who happened to find themselves on his bad side. Why did you call him Mr. Lime again? Deirdre said. It was the name he gave himself, I explained. He liked old movies. He didn't want to give me his real name. He was a fan of the third man, and I think thought of himself like the Orson Welles character in the film, Harry Lyme, a charming, immoral monster. 
So you don't know his real name? Homicide Detective Fred Hutton was leaning on a nearby counter. I shook my head. No, and I don't know where he really lived or what his business really was. Not for sure. But you think he was involved in criminal activity? Deirdre asked. It sure seemed like it, I said. I know he hired Dylan LaSalle at one point to act as a drug mule. We never found any proof of that, Homicide Detective Fred Hutton said. As you told me at the time, repeatedly, I said. And although he knew all about the death of that film projectionist, I don't think he was personally involved. In fact, I got the sense that he wasn't personally involved in anything. Like he was a puppeteer, managing events, but never getting his hands dirty. They got plenty dirty tonight, Deirdre said dryly. I looked down at the delicate corpse on the table in front of me. Mr. Lime had always seemed simultaneously both tiny and immensely imposing. Not a bad trick if you can pull it off. Was he dead before he went down the stairs? Deirdre shrugged. It's unclear, but he was absolutely dead by the time he hit the bottom, she said. I wish I could help you, I said, but I have literally told you everything I know about the guy. I pulled the sheet back up over his head, but it didn't really work. Even completely covered, I couldn't stop seeing that terrifying face. The sun was just coming up as I headed home. The day was threatening to snow, but like it had the last few days, it felt like another empty threat. Megan had been disappointed we'd had no snow for our recent Thanksgiving dinner, but Harry had been quick to put a positive spin on it. A trouble with snow on Thanksgiving, he'd said, is that by the time mid-January hits, it feels like we've had snow forever. It makes for a long, cruel winter. Count your blessings and pass the potatoes. I'd opted to take the scenic route home from the morgue, circling around the chain of lakes which dominate the landscape in South Minneapolis. This circuitous path eventually led me around Lake Harriet, which inevitably took me to Penn Avenue. Without even really thinking about it, I pulled the car over and shut off the engine. From my position behind the wheel, I could just see the top of the stairs which cut down the steep hill to the lake below. I sat there for a while, not really sure why I had taken this longer route home. And then, still not sure why, I got out of the car and crossed the street. I stood for several seconds at the top of the precipitous concrete staircase. The comparison with the famous steps from The Exorcist was a good one, but with one key difference. The steps in Georgetown at least have the civility to include a couple of lights. By contrast, the stairs leading from Penn Avenue down to Lake Harriet offered no such helpful illumination. Even with the sunrise nearly complete, the long, hard stairway was dimly lit and shadowy. The fact that no crime scene tape obstructed the top or the bottom of the steps drove home the idea the Minneapolis Police Homicide Division wasn't convinced a wrongdoing of any kind had occurred here. Yet, I couldn't imagine a reasonable scenario for a frail and wobbly old man to decide that midnight 
would be an ideal time for a quick jog around the lake and that this treacherous stairway was the most efficient way to get there. I started down the steps, taking generous advantage of its cold handrail to ensure my otherwise precarious balance. After ten steps, I began to wonder why more people hadn't tumbled down this particular stairway. The narrowness of the steps and their uneven spacing certainly made falling the most likely outcome. As I reached the twentieth step, I realized I was counting and wasn't sure why, but I kept at it, carefully navigating the incline until I reached the safety of the bottom, although safety was a relative term. The steps emptied out onto a bike path and offered limited visibility prior to that final step. Luckily, no bicyclists were currently on the pathway, which gave me a moment to turn and look back up the steep slope. Thirty-eight steps. That was the number of concrete stairs Mr. Lyme had tumbled down. Did he fall or was he pushed just a few hours before? Thirty-eight steps. Why did that phrase stick in my head? My brain was suggesting it was familiar without giving me any further clues as to why. And then I figured it out, and I felt strangely sad for Mr. Lyme. This might have been the first time I ever had. As a fanatical film fan, he would have likely been intimately acquainted with Alfred Hitchcock's early film, The 39 Steps. Even knowing him as little as I did, I suspected it might actually have been a favorite of his. Would he have enjoyed the irony of missing that goal by merely one step? Had he been able to count the stairs on his way down, silently wishing for one more small bit of concrete before landing with a fatal thud at the bottom? Or was he already dead before he began his journey down these lethal stairs? I looked up at the long flight. There was bright sun visible at the top, but precious little illumination for the majority of the stairway. If I was thinking that this might be a visual metaphor for the answers I would be discovering in the days and weeks ahead, a light at the end of a shadowy tunnel, I was sadly mistaken. There would be no light at the end of this mystery. At that moment, I knew just about all I would ever know about the odd death of an even odder man. That didn't mean I didn't think about it. I certainly did. I had plenty of other thoughts to occupy my mind over the next couple of weeks, but the death of Mr. Lyme on those 38 steps was a frequent visitor. I was never able to reach any sort of satisfying conclusion, though. Just a series of random images from our limited encounters mixed with the memory of his body in the morgue and his final journey down those deadly steps. Are you still pondering that staircase death? Uncle Harry asked. Because you certainly aren't in the here and now. Currently, the here and the now consisted of the back room of Chicago Magic, the shop Harry had founded and which I was attempting to keep on life support. He agreed to spend an afternoon with me, sorting through the mountains of stuff which had accumulated over the years in the storage area behind the store. 
There's plenty of treasure back there, he had said on more than one occasion. Over the next few hours, I hoped to determine the veracity of that statement. I also wanted to clear out all the junk, which my gut told me made up the majority of the alleged prized inventory. I don't know why his death sticks with me so much, I said. It's a puzzle I just can't solve. Are you becoming like our friend, Mr. Strickland? Yikes. I certainly hope not. I wouldn't wish that fate on anyone. Mr. Strickland was something of a legendary customer in the magic shop. He wasn't, as far as we could tell, a practicing magician, not an amateur nor a professional. To the best of my knowledge, he did not belong to either of the rival magic clubs in town. In all the years he'd been coming into the store, I don't believe I'd ever seen him perform even one trick. Yet, he bought tons of magic from us. Strickland appeared to have a singular goal, to find out how a trick was done. Period. That was the end of his interest in the illusion, regardless of how much he'd spent to get that information. He demonstrated zero interest in performing it. He was, in all recorded cases, merely after the secret. Uncle Harry, who has hard and fast rules about selling magic before a magician is ready to perform it, had long ago given up on Strickland. The man is a lost cause, Harry used to say. The man is your best customer, I'd respond. There's nothing saying he can't be both. And Strickland probably was the shop's best customer. Over the years, he'd likely purchased more tricks than any two or three magicians in town combined. The arrival of the Internet and online shopping did not appear to slow Strickland down. He lacked the patience to wait for FedEx or UPS to provide the answers he wanted. Nor did he trust the alleged answers provided on YouTube. Our shop was only a short drive away, and so, credit card in hand, he'd make the trip and have his answer in mere moments. It is not uncommon, after a customer purchases a trick, for Harry or me to demonstrate the secret for them, only after cash had exchanged hands, of course. While tricks generally come with written or video instructions, we felt it improved customer relations to help the buyer launch the new trick as quickly as possible. Plus, magic instructions can sometimes be famously opaque. We'd stopped offering this service for Strickland early on, as it was soul-crushing to explain a trick's clever secret and then have the customer merely grunt, nod, and walk out of the store. On more than one occasion, he didn't even bother to take the trick with him. So in his case, it was our practice to merely sell him the trick and make him actually have to watch a video or read a sheet of instructions. No, I'm not becoming Strickland, not to worry, I said. I could tell I was trying to convince Harry as much as myself. Eventually, I'll stop thinking about it. True to my word, I did just that for about 45 minutes. And then the sound of the bell over the shop door brought me back to reality. I pushed my way through the curtain from the back room, expecting to see a familiar face of some kind, a magician slash customer or my friend Nathan or even the mailman. Instead, I saw a face that frightened me. 
nearly as much as Mr. Lime's visage. It was Mr. Lime's assistant, his driver, his who-knows-what-else, the man he had nicknamed Harpo. I think I audibly gulped when I saw him standing in the doorway. He looked the same as he had on the handful of occasions I'd seen him in Mr. Lime's company, a squat and muscular man, the human equivalent of a fireplug, with a neck nearly equal to the width of his shoulders. A tightly trimmed hedge of red hair covered his apparently flat head. As with all of Lime's movie-themed nicknames, there was a hint of truth to the moniker he'd assigned to the man. He'd called me Mandrake, after the comic book and early movie character. We were both magicians, so that made a certain sense. In the case of his assistant, the resemblance to the famous comedy film star ended at the fact they were both silent at all times. I'd never noticed any of the warmth and playfulness of Harpo Marx in this man. Just the opposite, in fact he projected a nearly palpable air of impending violence. His silence only increased that threat tenfold. We stared at each other for a long moment. Finally, I asked the question which was hanging in the air between us. So you heard about Mr. Lime? He nodded. Another pause. Was it an accident? He shook his head. Do you know how it happened? He nodded. I couldn't figure out how to phrase my next question, and part of me really didn't want to know the answer. But another part did. Have you dealt with the person or persons responsible? He gave me a long, steady look, and then finally he nodded. I see, I said. I see. Now that I had the information, I really didn't know what to do with it. Apparently, someone had killed Mr. Lime, and his assistant had extracted a similar violent revenge. I suppose there were other ways to read that silent answer, but I wasn't seeing them. Harpo reached into his jacket pocket, and I couldn't help it. I flinched. He very, very slowly removed a white letter-size envelope from the depths of his coat. He closed the distance between us, holding the envelope out in front of him. It hovered between us for a long, awkward moment. Finally, I tentatively took it from him. The moment I did, he turned, and two seconds later, he was out the door. Harry must have heard the bell. He poked his head out between the curtains, which separated the back room from the store. Who are you talking to out here, Marcel Marceau? It was Harpo, I explained. Mr. Lime's assistant, right-hand man, bodyguard, thug, I don't know. I weighed the envelope in my hand. Whatever was in there, it wasn't very heavy. Realizing I could easily spend the rest of the afternoon staring at it, I figured it made more sense to just get it over with. I ripped the envelope open like tearing off a Band-Aid. One quick, decisive action. Inside was a single sheet of paper. I pulled it out and read it once, quickly. I whistled, slowly, and then read it again. What is it? 
A summons? said Harry. I shook my head, still rereading the short missive, reeling a bit from the implications. It's from a foundation, I finally said, as I handed the sheet to Harry. This foundation has established a scholarship for 15 kids to attend a magic convention every year, covering all their costs. My favorite magic convention. The Mandrake Scholarship, Harry said slowly. He looked up at me. Mandrake, the magician? From the comic books, the movie serials? I nodded. That was Mr. Lime's nickname for me. I was Mandrake, the magician. His silent assistant was Harpo. Dylan LaSalle was Francis, the talking mule. He liked movie-related nicknames. So it would seem, Harry said as he looked at the letter again. Essentially, the scholarship is in your name. It's in honor of you, as it were. But you're the only one who's ever going to know that. I think that was by design. I think he wanted to give me something without actually giving me anything, you know, overtly. I headed over to my laptop on the counter, grabbing the letter from Harry as I did. I looked at the name of the foundation in the letterhead and typed it into a search bar. Moments later, I was reading about the foundation and its work. Mr. Lime must have set up a foundation to shelter all of his income after he died. By the looks of this thing, the foundation is only about a month old. Well, you can't get much done in a month, Harry commented. On the contrary, I said, if this is legitimate, they seem to be giving money to all sorts of different causes. Clean water, schools, free lunch programs, pre-K education, cancer research, and the Mandrake Scholarship. It goes on and on. I thought you said he was a criminal. I shrugged. I got the sense that a lot of what he did was illegal and that some of it was possibly murderous. And yet, here's a foundation doing all kinds of good things. I looked over at Harry. If I didn't have any idea who Mr. Lime was before, then I'm completely baffled now. I stared at the website for a few moments longer and then shut the laptop. Let's finish up cleaning out that back room, I said as I pushed my way through the curtains. Maybe it was like an Ebenezer Scrooge sort of thing, Harry said. This came out of the blue about 30 minutes later. Although we'd made progress in clearing out the junk, separating the wheat from the chaff, as I glanced around it looked like we'd hardly made a dent. It was becoming clear this was not going to be a one-day job after all. What? The transformation your friend went through, Harry said, his voice coming from behind a small tower of cardboard boxes. Like Scrooge did, with the ghost of Christmas yet to come. You think Mr. Lime was visited by spirits? I could hear Harry grunt in annoyance as he got up. He peered at me over the top of the boxes. No, no, he said. As he got older, like many of us do, he looked back at what he'd done with his life and wanted to change the narrative. He then launched into what I'm assuming was his Ebenezer Scrooge impression. Spirit, I'm not the man I was. Assure me that I yet may change these shadows by an altered life. Oh, but tell me I may sponge away the writing on this stone. 
Maybe, I said slowly. I'm just having trouble merging the two images in my mind. The guy I thought was a total villain suddenly turns out to be generous to a fault. Maybe he became generous because of his faults, Harry offered. He wouldn't be the first, that's for sure. So you're convinced this Mr. Lyme was some sort of an underworld titan? I shrugged. That might be overstating it, but I really got the sense that he was in charge of some sort of criminal syndicate. I pictured the steep stairs leading down to the lake and his final fateful plunge. Or at least he was in charge. Until recently. Sounds like a classic dual reality situation to me. Dual reality? Absolutely. You've certainly dealt with that enough in your act. I know for a fact that you do at least one trick that employs dual reality. The volunteer sees one result while the audience perceives something wholly different. I'm lost. How does this apply to Mr. Lyme? Eli, you live and breathe paradoxes and dual realities on stage, yet seem unable to recognize them in real life, Harry said. People are not just one thing. Like Chris Christopherson told us, most of us are partly truth, partly fiction, a walking contradiction. You're quoting Chris Christopherson at me? What's next? Will you offer an insight discovered by the Wichita lineman? That was Glenn Campbell, Harry said, as he returned to sorting items from a sagging cardboard box. He looked up as he worked. There is plenty of precedent. Alfred Nobel invented dynamite, but is now only known for the Nobel Prize. Henry Ford was no saint, but he gave us the Ford Foundation. Carnegie, Rockefeller, Vanderbilt, the list goes on and on. Rewriting the narrative, erasing the past by enriching the future. I stood there for a long moment considering this idea trying to bend my mind around this new view of Mr. Lyme. Was it possible the worst person I'd ever met was also the best person I'd ever met? Snow had finally come, just in time for Christmas. Driving was slow, and finishing up my final errands had taken longer than anticipated. My last assignment had been to pick up two focaccia and some herb and garlic mascarpone at Broder's Deli. I wasn't sure why I decided to take the scenic route home until I found myself at the intersection of Penn Avenue and Lake Harriet Boulevard. The steps down to the lake were directly in front of me as I made a right turn. Without even thinking about it, I pulled over and parked, shutting off the car and getting out. I zipped up my jacket to my neck, wishing I'd brought a hat, as the wind off the lake was sharp and biting. I waited for a snow-covered car to slowly roll past me in the street. The driver had only cleared off the windshield, and so the vehicle looked like a slow-moving snowbank. Once it passed, I headed across the street. The snow was silent beneath my feet, still being in that fresh, fluffy stage. The crunchy phase would come later when the temperature dropped further. More flakes floated down, visible in the light from the street lamp, 
suggesting even more snow was on the way. A faded wooden barrier had been set across the top of the steps, although it was really just a formality. The steps were dangerous in fine weather. After a couple of snowfalls, you'd have to be insane to attempt them. I stood at the top of the steep stairway and looked down into the darkness. A dim streetlight was visible by the lake, and the slope of the white snow did its best to reflect that light back, but the definition of the steps had been lost in the snowfall. Now it just looked like a scary and badly lit ski run. I thought back to the early morning phone call from Deirdre and the visit to the morgue. Until the moment I had pulled the sheet back on his corpse, I probably hadn't thought about Mr. Lyme for over a year. Yet over the last month, his name and his image kept popping up in my mind. Harry had said I was having trouble coming to grips with the paradox of the man's life, and I think he was right. I knew Mr. Lyme had harmed other people, probably a lot of other people. I had slotted him in the bad guy column and let it go at that. But now I was learning there was more to him than that. It was a lesson which was having trouble adhering to my brain. I don't know why I was resisting it, but I was. Suddenly, my train of thought was interrupted. There wasn't a sound behind me, yet somehow, instinctively, I knew I wasn't alone. I turned not sure what I was expecting to see, and was utterly surprised by the revelation. And then I saw its inevitability. It was Harpo. He was bundled up for the cold with a heavy coat and a small stocking cap pulled tightly across his wide head. Oh, I said as I stepped back, I didn't hear you come up. A million thoughts raced through my head, one scenario after another. My first and strongest instinct was that it had been Harpo who had pushed Mr. Lyme down those 38 steps, and now he was here to do the same with me. I recognized the snowy slope might not kill me, but I was unlikely to walk away from it uninjured. Harpo merely looked at me and then stepped forward past me. He stood looking down into the darkness. He was completely motionless. And then he made the first sound I'd ever heard come out of him. He sighed. He turned and looked at me, his face as expressionless as ever. You miss him, right? I said quietly. He nodded. I suppose I do too, in my own way, I said. We looked down at the white, slippery slope in front of us. Snow continued to fall, the flakes larger than they'd been just a few minutes before. I thought I knew who he was, I continued. Thought I had him all figured out. Thought I was an excellent judge of people, but clearly I was wrong. In death, he was benevolent and thoughtful. Did that come out of the blue? Was he always that way? Did I misunderstand his place in the world? Did I misconstrue his actions? Was he a good guy or a bad guy? Or was he both? I took a breath. Harpo merely stared blankly back at me. I'm not sure why I'm struggling with this to the degree I am, I continued. 
I've always known that life is not black and white, that no one is 100% anything. My biggest nemesis in the magic world, Simon Hartwell, does benefit shows all the time and volunteers at the children's hospital. Personally, I think he's a bit of a creep, but you can't deny that's at least a little bit good, right? Snow was accumulating atop his stocking cap, but Harpo listened patiently. I was thinking about that coin, the quarter, I said. The police said it was the only thing they had found on him. When did I do that trick for him? Two years ago? Three? I remember it was in a coffee shop near the magic store. It was snowing then as well. Harpo nodded. All this time later, and he was still carrying that coin around, I continued. Of all the things he accumulated in his life, he felt the need to carry that one thing with him. Why was it that important to him? What did it symbolize? I looked down the snowy slope in front of us. The stairs, all 38 of them, were entirely obscured. I know it's completely self-centered of me, alert the media, a self-obsessed performer, but part of me thinks that maybe, just maybe, I might have made a difference to him. I might have steered him toward this end-of-life beneficence. Maybe something I said or did made an actual difference. I turned to Harpo. He was still patiently listening. The snow landing on his face was starting to melt, making it look like he was crying. But of course, that wasn't possible. It's a silly thought, I know, I said. But that's what I keep thinking. Harpo continued to look at me without blinking. And then he did something I'd never expected him to do. He spoke. His voice was surprisingly soft and warm. I'm not sure I'd ever had an idea of what he might sound like, but this wasn't it. I guess I thought his voice would be as tough as his demeanor. But it was just the opposite. Sometimes people surprise you. He looked at me for a long moment. He didn't exactly smile, but his scowl appeared to dissolve, if only for a moment. Merry Christmas, Eli. And then, just as he had done in the store, he turned and quickly headed away. He crossed the street and a large car zipped between us. When it had passed, Harpo was nowhere to be seen. Merry Christmas, I whispered, wondering, not for the first time, if this encounter had actually taken place. I stood there for a few minutes more as the snow continued to swirl around me. And then I headed for home. Okay, I know somebody out there is going to check. They're going to, someone in the Twin Cities is going to go up and down the steps and say there aren't 38 steps. There's actually 41 steps, 40 if you don't count the top step. But I don't care. 38 steps sounded better. Well, and, why wasn't uh, it 39 steps? Because that well, was there's taken. a movie that's already yeah. taken. And be, because uh, Mr. Lime is such a movie fan, I thought it would be fun. They'd have it be one off of one of his favorite movies. And speaking of favorite things to do, you no longer have to do the voice of Mr. Lime, which I know kills your throat, uh, unless there's a flashback at some later point. 
Oh, I'll look forward to that. Silly me, really, because I should be smart enough to go, oh, you can't sustain that. that that'll wreck you for the rest of the... I, I remember a, a story that you told about a professional, a voice talent here in Minneapolis who does a lot of impressions, and he was going to do a bunch of impressions for a corporate thing that we were, I think, working on together. And you brought him in and he looked at the impressions he was going to do. Kermit the Frog, George Burns, just a whole bunch of them that he can do. And he said to you, can I put these in an order? Does it matter to you? And you said, I don't, it doesn't matter to me. And so he structured them so that he could blow through all the stuff that wouldn't stress his voice and then yeah. finish with the stuff that really wrecked him, which Having known that story, I should have been smart enough to pick a different voice for Mr. Lime, but there you go. Yeah, I'm suspecting that was the great Tim Russell. That, that who, was the great. Still kicking, still yeah. still working. And who radio fans will remember from years and years on a Prairie Home Companion doing all kinds of uh, all kinds of voices and impressions. Uh, he he really set a high standard for that in the Twin Cities. Anyway, back to the 38 steps of uh, the beginning of the story takes place at the Minneapolis Medical Examiner's office. Um, I said it a little bit in the past because I knew that they had moved it out to Bloomington or something, and I wanted to use the original one, which is downtown, I think right off Chicago Avenue. And we're thrilled now to be able to talk to an actual medical examiner who is, I'm guessing, quite good at his job because he's working at the Mayo. Uh, <laughs> but he's also, having seen some video of him, a pretty darn uh, good magician. I have not seen uh, his magic yet, but I certainly enjoyed talking to him as a medical examiner and as a magician. Well, I and, did put uh, a link in the show notes, which you can check as soon as we're done talking here. Uh, he was on a kind of a video podcast out of Texas, I think, in which he does a couple card tricks. And one of them, as the magicians like to say, fooled me badly. And I did email him about it, and he very kindly talked me through it, not as if to a child, but as if to say, did you notice the thing I did right before I did that thing? That was important. And I went, oh, yes, I did notice it. I didn't think about it. Now I know. Okay. There you go. Thank you. Yes. He was very, very kind about it. Um, we talk about all kinds of amazing stuff with Reed, including a bit of a bombshell at the end, which I think floored both of us. But first up, me. we had to talk about his name and just how cool it is. We're gonna jump around, I'm guessing, between magic and medicine a bit because you, you straddle both camps. Um, I will say up front that the that with the name Reed Quinton and a doctor in front of it, the fact that you're not part of the MCU as an alter ego to a superhero, <laughs> I think they're missing a bet there. Uh, I agree. You sound you know, like a superhero. You know. it, it warms my heart for you to say that. I am absolutely an MCU super fan. I've, I've loved comics since I was a little kid. And uh, and yeah, I do have a kind of an unusual name. Usually 99.9% .9 of the time, everyone gets it backwards. So they assume Quentin's my first name. Yep. And uh, and so I pretty much just answer to anything, you know. Uh, like I said, we're delighted to have you here. Uh, I've done a little bit of research with you online. Uh, you totally fooled me with a trick you did on another video podcast that you kind of talked me through nicely uh, on email. And then I went, oh, I okay, yes, duh. 
Uh, I should have I should have figured that out, but I didn't until I did. So anyway, there is a pretty traditional route that most of the people we talk to on this podcast go through when it comes to getting into magic. Uh, usually as a kid, usually getting a magic trick or they have an uncle or a neighbor who pulls a quarter out of their ear. But you came in uh, later and differently, right? Yes. Um, I wasted a lot of time before I discovered magic. So. <laughs> Um, yeah, so I came in as, I guess, if you want to call me an adult, I don't think any of us are truly adults, but uh, um, yeah, I was in medical school when I discovered magic and I credit one of the uh, teachers who was a retired surgeon uh, to introducing me to magic in my third year of med school. So I was about in my mid twenties. And you probably had a lot of free time during med school oh. then to dig around with uh, magic and uh, start doing shows. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, you have so much time when you're in med school. No, the, the downtime uh, is helpful. So when you're on call at night, you know, on surgery and you're stuck in a call room and waiting for the next call, that's, you know, that's when you can practice a couple of uh, card moves or something like that. So how did he bring up magic when the time came? So Dr. Watts Webb was his name. Uh, he was a retired cardiothoracic surgeon. And he actually, uh, at that point, was doing kind of small group lectures for us when we were rotating through cardiovascular surgery. And so it is usually a group of maybe six medical students at a time. And we'd come in and uh, having sat through early morning rounds and several you know, surgeries over the day, sometime in the afternoon, he'd sit down with us and say, okay, today, you know, I'm going to give you just a, a little chalk talk or lecture about Know, whatever, pulmonary hypertension or what have you. And so he'd chat for about 30 minutes and it was very informal, kind of relaxed. And, and honestly, that type of small group teaching has become more and more popular in med school and, and it's pretty effective. And almost every time after he would finish whatever topic he was covering, he would then turn around and go, okay, you guys want to see some magic now? <laughs> and it, it turned out at this point he had quite a few grandchildren and uh, and loved to learn this stuff and perform it for them. But I mean, he actually gave some big lectures later and I, I saw him perform on stage before or after doing a big lecture in a lecture hall too. So he, he really embraced it. And yeah, he was the one who afterwards I went up to him when I was about to leave that rotation. And I said, you know, Dr. Webb, my next rotation is pediatrics. And it just seems like this would make sense to learn something. And, uh, and so he was the first one to kind of enlighten me as to, you know, here are some of the resources, uh, you know, there are books available, there are videos. And then I, he was the first person ever who mentioned uh, a national organization. So he was the one who told me about the SAM and the IBM and all of that. Wow. And, and that, so it did come in handy in that rotation? Oh, yes, absolutely. I, I picked up a few little things learn very quickly, you know, what's appropriate and inappropriate for pediatric patients. And I, I think that was actually the biggest educational part of it was kind of learning very quickly, like, okay, a three-year-old is not going to understand playing cards, you know? So yeah. I had no idea who David Kay was yet, but eventually when I started reading his material, I was like, yes, now I understand. Um, but yeah, it was really fun to kind of take that moment to walk in, see a, a patient, and before you start 
poking and prodding and, you know, listening to their heart and everything, just sitting down and doing a simple little trick that kind of wins them over a little bit. And then, you know, you do a card trick or a coin trick or whatever, and then say, Hey, you, you mind if I listen to your heart now? And they're like, Oh yeah, sure. You know? So it, it worked out a lot. What a great icebreaker. Yeah, yeah. really. Absolutely. How terrific is that? Having spent some time uh, with uh, one of my kids in the hospital, that kind of thing would be fantastic in order to relax a child and their parents. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So uh, if you come to it later in life, as you did, uh, are you mostly then self-taught or did you seek out a mentor or how did you how did you get better at it? Sure, sure. So great question. So that was during my third year. Uh, the best part of this story was that I, I went home and, you know, bought my first book off the, you know, bargain rack at Barnes and Nobles. And that's how I started. And uh, I remember my wife going, you know, this is great. This is a hobby you can get into. That's just so inexpensive. You just need some cards and a couple of books. I was like, yeah. And uh, now she regrets saying that. Yeah, all magicians listening to this podcast are laughing uproariously. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Many, many years later and many conferences and books and props later, she she regrets that. But uh, but yeah, so the first I guess that last year and a half of medical school was pretty much just self-taught as I was picking up little things and finding some books and resources. And then after medical school, then you choose what you're going to practice and you go into residency. So, so for me, in order to pursue forensic pathology, which is what my goal was, uh, you go into a pathology uh, residency first. So pathology back then was a five-year program. It's, it's now kind of condensed a little into four years. Um, but when I chose my residency location, <clears throat> that was in Dallas, Texas. And so when I settled in there, I started exploring and saying, okay, what is available here in Dallas? Like, is there a magic shop? Is there that? And that's when I discovered that there was a huge local uh, Dallas Magic Clubs, which is a com combined SAM and IBM uh, club. And uh, at least when I left Dallas a few years ago, they were up to over 80 members. So huge oh, club. Right. Yeah. So you found so your people. Within yeah. there, there were quite a few people I would count as as friends and, and mentors, uh, you know, as I kind of worked my way through some of this stuff. Okay. So I'm going to ask just the stupidest question first. And like I said, we're going to go back and forth between magic and medicine here. What is the difference between a medical examiner and a coroner? Oh, I'm glad you asked. So in the simplest terms, um, both of them investigate cause of death, essentially. Okay. But in general, and if you look across the country, there are two systems. There are coroner systems, medical examiner systems, and then in some states, there's kind of a combined thing. Um, coroners are usually elected officials. So they are county officials that are elected by the public. So you run for the position of coroner. Oh, I did not um, know that. Yeah. And in um, depending on where you are, there are certain requirements for being the coroner, but everywhere is different. So uh, you may have some that say, you know, you have to be a physician. You may have some that say you have to have certain uh, training, but quite often it's whoever gets the most votes. Um, so I knew, um, well, back in New Orleans where I grew up, the coroner, uh, Dr. Minyard, was a physician, but he was a retired OBGYN. And he was the coroner there for many, many years. And, and he basically had to rerun for office every four years. Um, when I was a medical student, there was a pathology resident in training who in his local 
county or at parish back in, in Louisiana, he said, you know, they're, they're running, they're opening up the job for coroner and everyone else running doesn't know what the heck they're talking about. He said, so I figure I'll just throw my hat in and he became coroner. So, and he was still in training. So, huh. so yeah. So coroners are typically elected officials. There are a few, few exceptions um, where the, the states or cities get around it. So for instance, Colorado in general is a coroner state. However, in Denver, they rewrote their own laws to say that the position of coroner will be held by the chief medical examiner, who is then appointed by the county and not voted on. So that there are some ways around that. But a medical examiner is different in that we still, you know, our job is to investigate death, but medical examiners typically are people who are MDs trained in forensic pathology. And we are not uh, elected officials. We are uh, basically hired by whatever jurisdiction that is to perform our duties. Wow. That's fascinating. I had no idea. I don't think I, I vote regularly. I mean, whenever they want me to vote, I vote. I don't ever remember voting for a coroner. Minnesota is actually a mixed uh, uh, system. So the smaller counties do have coroners. Larger county systems just have medical examiners. So like in Olmstead County, where I am right now, you wouldn't vote for a coroner because there's a medical examiner. There's us. Uh, in Hennepin, where you guys are, or in, in uh, St. Paul, they have medical examiners. So those positions are not voted on there. But if you were in a tiny county, you might. Okay. So that explains it. So uh, uh, it, we uh, all right. So I, the reason I didn't vote for one is because we don't vote for one. Right. And yeah. And in Texas, where I where I was for many years, uh, it's a similar system. They don't actually call them coroners, but they're justices of the peace, but they have the same function. So in the larger, in any um, population, a million or higher, the, the uh, Texas statutes say you have to have a medical examiner. But in the smaller counties that might not be able to afford a medical examiner office, then they they have a justice of the peace who is voted on and he functions basically as the coroner. And he can bury you or marry you, depending on what's right. exactly going on. Right. Let's hope it's in reverse order. <laughs> uh, so what is the biggest fallacy about the job of medical examiner? And a, kind of a uh, follow-up question would be, what are the TV shows and movies that we're watching and enjoying get most wrong right. about your job? I think, you know, one of the biggest struggles we have is because people watch all of these shows, CSI and NCIS and all that. And so they have an expectation of, you know, this precision science that we do for everything. And for some things, that's absolutely true, but not everything. And the one I think that gets elaborated on the most in the most ridiculous ways on television and in any kind of fiction is usually cause or time of death. So when did someone die? You know, um, there are ranges I can give where I can say, oh, you know, this person's been dead just a few hours or this person's been dead within the last 24 hours or they've been dead, you know, much longer than that. But we don't do you know, I don't look at it and say this person's been dead for three point five hours. Ah. Uh, you know, we, I, I never for, forget watching an episode of NCIS where, you know, Ducky pulls out some kind of sensor of some sort i don't remember what it was literally points it at the body it's like a thermometer and then he looks at the digital reading and goes oh he's been dead for four and a half hours i'm like 
oh my God, I want one of those. I don't, <laughs> I want it. Uh, that's funny. Uh, so, of course, as a layman, I assume that that exists. Yeah, I mean, so we have generalities, you know, but um, there are so many factors that go into things like that, uh, that it can never be perfect. So, you know, you're not just looking at the body and the body temperature, but you're looking at, you know, what's the temperature of the environment they're in? Um, you know, what, uh, what were they doing at the time? Are they buried or not buried? It, there's so many factors that go into it that it's it's better to just give a general range. Right. Now, maybe I'm remembering this wrong, but aren't there two kinds of official death? That is, the, the guys in the ambulance going, okay, he's gone. But there's, there's another level of of, okay, I'm officially calling this. Am I wrong? Did I remember that wrong? Well, I, I, sort of. I mean, so <clears throat> there's definitely a point at which someone is pronounced dead. Right. Now, um, in the ambulance, usually they are in contact with whoever the doc on call is in the ER or something like that. And sometimes they are allowed to pronounce at the scene or, you know, pronounce on the way. But then sometimes the doctor pronounces the time of death when they get there. Um, but usually that, you know, pronounced dead time is literally just when someone pronounced them dead. It's not when they died. And so we do have sometimes when people ask like, well, the death certificate says they died at such and such a time, but we know he died before that. Say, so, yeah, that's when he was pronounced, but he probably died a few hours before that. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Um, this is, I may cut this out because it might be the stupidest question in the world, but <laughs> did did you watch the TV show House ever? Yes, I did. I, were I, you I, always ahead of him or were you were you stumped just like he was right until the end? No, I mean, there were times, I mean, but honestly, so much of those, so many of those stories are so convoluted. Um, they are fun to kind of see where they're going to go with them. Uh, but no, I... I think because there is still a fictional layer to what they do that, you know, they'll be describing something and it's throwing me off because they're describing it wrong. Right. But uh, the thing that used to make me laugh, and I, I think I still have the PowerPoint slide, but um, I remember at one point I was giving a lecture for mystery writers, actually, this was probably 10, 12 years ago. And I had a picture of house and I said, okay, based on what House does in his series, this is how much training he would have had to have. And it was like 35 years of training because, <laughs> you know, House would go, he would go see a patient and try to make an infectious disease diagnosis. But then he would turn around later and perform an autopsy. And I'm like, whoa, that's a whole different specialty. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Are there any TV shows or movies that you think really got it right where you went, yep, that's how I do my job? Um, gosh, it's hard to say. There are always little snippets of things that, you know, you nod and go, yeah, that that feels right. But then the next sentence, they'll turn around and say something that you go, ah, you know. Um, I honestly like the the shows and books where they really kind of just pull back and don't get too technical because the more technical they try to get, the sort of worse it becomes. Uh, so, you know, in, in mysteries and things like that, I like when somebody just says, yeah, he's got a hole in his head and it looks like a gunshot wound. Good. Okay. We can go with that. Um, <laughs> But that's uh, all we need, you know, for this episode, um, the listeners will have just heard the uh, Eli Mark story, the 38 steps, which is, I think, one of the few times that Eli is confronted 
with a body in a, a medical examiner setting. I don't think there's any other point where he does that. In that story, did I get things right? And I know you read other Eli Mark stuff. Is there stuff that I'm getting right? Or is there stuff where you, that I'm really getting wrong that if I republish, I should go in and fix? <laughs> no, nothing like that. Um, no, actually, it, it was uh, pretty accurate for the most part. I mean, I loved, you had the little flavor text describing the Hennepin County office and its location. And it was about to move and, you know, where that story was. And at the time it was, they were located exactly where you said they are. And now they've just moved a few years ago. The only thing in there that I think is traditional and you almost always have it in these stories is um, the people viewing the body. And then, you know, they kind of pull back the sheet and show the face and all that. And to be quite honest, that's pretty, pretty um, seldom, if, if ever. Um, it's so hard to control that environment to have someone come in and do a visual inspection of the body, you know, like a, a next of kin. Um, and and I was, I'm always concerned about, you know, is, am I going to put this person in danger? Are they going to pass out? Are they going to injure themselves or what have you? And, and so honestly, that type of viewing almost never happens in real life. If it does, uh, it's a very, very controlled environment. And usually, uh, like for instance here, if we had to do it, we have a viewing room where they would be on one side of a wall with glass and, you know, the, the body would be on the other side. But, but quite honestly, the, that visual inspection is never used for identification because there have been plenty of cases where people misidentify their own loved one you know, because, because of the circumstances. So, so I, I'd say that is pretty rare. Um, but the, in this particular case, kind of going through the person's uh, personal possessions and that kind of thing, try to figure out who is this person that we commonly go through that, you know, this, this notion of we have this person, we think it is this person, but we need to make sure. And then we have to decide, can we identify them based on circumstances alone or how scientific do we need to get, you know, do we need to do fingerprints? Do we need to do DNA? Do we need to do dental radiographs, things like that? How often does that happen that you need to dig down that deep? Um, I'd say it's not common, but it's fairly regular. Um, and most of the time, because, you know, so many people are fingerprinted nowadays, uh, if as long as there are fingers that are intact enough to do it, that's an easy solution and usually will work. Uh, dental and DNA identification are fantastic. But the only problem is you have to have a baseline of who you think it is first. So, in order to do a dental comparison, you have to say, well, we think it's this person, and now we're going to go ask their dentist for anti-mortem x-rays that were done, you know, before they died, maybe just during normal dental procedures. And then we're going to compare the new, the new ones we shoot in the post-mortem setting to the ones in the anti-mortem setting. Uh, but again, you have to think you know who it is. To, to even start that. And then same thing with DNA. I mean, in order to, to run a DNA test, you have to have someone to compare it to. And so we don't have a lot of um, databases out there where you can just plug in the information and get a cold hit. There are rare cases. Uh, for instance, anyone in active military automatically has DNA on file. Anyone who has been incarcerated before usually has DNA on file. So there are some instances, but just, you know, uh, that's not something you would normally do just on a random case without knowing who their next of kin should be. Hmm. I'm, I, I'm flabbergasted that that moment, which we see all the time in TV and movies of them bringing them into a cold storage, pulling a drawer, 
uncovering a thing just doesn't happen. I, it, it's it's ubiquitous in that sort of genre, and to find out <laughs> that you don't actually do that is is shocking to me and yeah. kind of cool. Yeah, I think in the old days it used to be more common, but um, you know it, things have gotten better and more scientific for one. And then on top of that, the uh, there's so much risk involved in that, like I said, and and you don't want to put yourself or the next of kin in a position, you know, where uh, they injure themselves uh, because they pass out in the middle of the viewing. And I mean, I can tell you those things do happen. Um, they certainly happen with you know, medical students and residents and you know, law enforcement that come to see autopsies. So we're always kind of keeping an eye out to try to protect the other people in the room. And so that's almost a, an unnecessary risk, to be honest. Well, it, it almost happened here with me, with you describing it. So imagine what would have happened if I'd actually been there. <laughs> Lucky we're sitting down. Yes. Uh, so, uh, doctor, you do a presentation called Quicker Than the Eye, the Intersection of Magic, Medicine, and Neuroscience. That's fascinating to me, and I think probably to our listeners. Can you give us maybe just a brief version of what that talk is about or what it consists of? Sure, sure. Um, and I, I want to start by giving the biggest amount of credit to uh, the McBride School, the, the Mystery and Magic School in Las Vegas, because oh. uh, they actually do a magic and medicine conference every other year uh, run by, so all the names you guys already know and have been on the show. So uh, Larry Haas is the dean there. Jeff McBride, uh, and then specifically for magic and medicine, Dr. Ricardo Rosencrantz, who is a neonatologist out of Northwestern University. Um, and so they started years ago doing this program that basically talked about sort of the synergy between magic and medicine. Um, as Ricardo always says, he says that magic and medicine share DNA. Um, meaning that a lot of the skill sets that we use on stage, you can actually employ uh, in the same setting with patients, you know, in, in the patient interaction. And so that talk that I gave uh, was actually for Grand Rounds here at, at Mayo uh, a while back, and uh, basically was kind of a springboard off of that to talk about kind of uh, the principles in magic, how they kind of interact with how we practice medicine, but then obviously getting into the neuroscience behind how does magic work? Which Joshua Jay has a, a fantastic discussion about that and, and writes about that as well. And, um, and then eventually kind of settling in on at the end, sort of how does all of this roll into someone like me, who certainly does not see patients who react and talk back? Uh, mm. so, you know, how do, <laughs> I, yeah, how do I use those skill sets um, in the setting of forensic pathology, which is a bit different? You know, I don't know if you've ever heard Dennis Miller's joke about uh, medical examiners. I think the easiest job in the world has to be coroner. Surgery on dead people. <laughs> A lot of leeway there, huh? <laughs> What's the worst thing that could happen? You know, uh, if everything went wrong, maybe you get a pulse. <laughs> You mentioned that the skills can move back and forth between medicine and, and magic. How has it helped you when you're presenting, for example, in a trial, you're dealing with a, with an audience. Um, how does your magic training help you there? 
Sure. So a um, couple of things. First of all, I remember being at the Magic and Medicine School, and um, I think it was Ricardo joking with me. He said, yeah, some of this might not apply to you since your patients don't talk back. And I said, I said, no, Ricardo, you don't understand. I said, I use all of these skills that you're describing, but I use them for 12 people at once. And, you know, his eyes got really bright and he said, oh, I never thought about it that way. Um, and, and so if you kind of take what they talk about, but also roll right into what Ken Weber talks about with maximum entertainment. If you talk about skills like, you know, your stage presence, costuming, things like that. You know, if I get up on the stand to present a case, I have to be aware of how I look. How do I present myself? How do I speak to the jury so that they're understanding who am I and what do I do? And I kind of get that across very quickly. Um, so costuming is important. Um, sort of knowing your script. So scripting, like we talk about in magic, is important in what I do as well. So you don't want to get up on the stand and stumble through the description. So, you know, normally if I'm presenting a case with multiple injuries, I pretty much have most of that case memorized. So I don't have to keep going back and forth through my notes. Um, scripting, but scripting, I would say Matt King style, where there's the script you follow and then the little deviations you always take because things always change and lawyers ask different questions. And so you need to know how to go off topic enough to answer something and then swing right back to where you were. Um, the other huge thing to me is, is eye contact and engaging the, the, the jury. You know, uh, a lot of people don't think about the fact that when they're answering questions, you know, when they're, the lawyer's asking you a question, most people look at the lawyer and answer that question. Uh, honestly, you shouldn't be looking at the lawyer because the lawyer already knows the answer. What you should be doing is looking over at the jury and directly making eye contact with them and making sure they understand. So, so I use that quite a bit, whereas I'm presenting my case, I'm bouncing my eyes, you know, kind of the Juan Tamarese, you know, I'm going from person to person, looking at each one of them, making sure like, oh, that guy back there seems like he's starting to nod off. So I really start to focus in his direction until he perks back up and then kind of moving around. So I think all of those things are just crucial to, to what I do. And I, you know, I tell my trainees all the time, I mean, there, it is unfortunate that you could be the smartest person ever to get up and testify, but if the jury doesn't connect with you, they're not going to believe you. And, and that's sad because you should be able to just give facts and be done. But the best people, you know, the most effective people in our field can establish that connection with the jury. You know, I, in doing some research on you, because you, you, you kindly said anything you need to know about me, you can find very quickly on Google and, and you are all over the internet. There was uh, some video from a trial and you, I saw you doing exactly that. The question was asked and you turned and talked to the jury uh, and explained to the, explained it to them, not like you were talking down to them, yeah. uh, but here's what you need to know. And it was like a, a, a very skillful magic presentation in that you you just took them along to the key points you needed to get them to without talking over their heads. There's a balance between talking over their heads and getting too technical and then speaking down to them. And you have to find right in the middle where you're like, I'm going to take this very complicated information and give it to you in a way that you can understand it, but I don't want to sound condescending. You know, it, it's right. very, very difficult to find that happy medium sometimes. Um, I did have one time where um, I 
the defense was asking me a question years ago and he asked the question and I turned to the jury to answer. And he said, doctor, I'm the one asking you the question. You, you need to talk to me. And I looked at him and I said, well, you already know the answer. I'm, I don't have to prove anything to you. I have to explain it to them. <laughs> and so <laughs> I kept going. Uh, I'm just sort of picturing you're, you're the uh, medical examiner version of uh, Marissa Tomei and my cousin Vinny yeah. when it comes to proving that you're an expert. Can you answer the question? No, it is a trick question. Why is it a trick question? Because Chevy didn't make a 327 in 55. The 327 didn't come out till 62. And it wasn't offered in the Bel Air with a four-barrel carb till 64. However, in 1964, the correct ignition timing would be four degrees before top dead center. So you mentioned um, Dr. Rosencrantz and his theory, of, uh, I think, is interesting that medicine and magic share uh, DNA. Correct. Talk me through that just a little bit, because that's fascinating, but I don't understand it at all. Sure. So I, I think the best way to describe it is is kind of the way that uh, he and and honestly Jeff McBride kind of put this together. This idea of you know Jeff always says all of this started with one person, if you will. So which he he describes in Jeff style as of course the shaman, you know, uh, and the the shaman at that time, you know, way back in the day, kind of had all of these different responsibilities as sort of religious leader, um, entertainer, healer, you know, all these different things that that person would do for the tribe, right? And then over time, we separated all those out. So now clearly we have entertainers, we have healers, physicians, and then we have, uh, you know, other folks. I don't know why my phone is going off now. Hold on. But um, but anyway, so that's how they they kind of started with that idea was, you know, explaining that, all of these different things. We might Somebody have to... is dying to talk to you. <laughs> Sorry. Oh. It had to be said. Oh, wow. Okay. Right. Boy, that that fruit was so low hanging. It was hitting you in the I head. Know. I'm, I'm surprised you didn't take it. I waited. <laughs> I gave you the opportunity. But, but then I thought, well, screw it. If he's not going to swing at that pitch. I can I, hit that one. I, I, no, I just, I'm going to bunt and try to get you uh, on base. That's all I'm doing here today. <laughs> I am so sorry, guys. That's what That's happened. Okay. That's You're what no editing worries. is all about. Although we, we've had some witty banter, so we might leave it in. Who knows? Okay. So, so anyway, that's where that comes from, is that shared DNA idea is that even though now those uh, people are separated into different practices and groups, uh, we still kind of each cross cover some of the the practices within there. That's fascinating. Yeah, I can see it. I, I, I can see it. Of course I can see it, but it never occurred to me that way. Yeah. And again, I, I want to give all the credit to Ricardo and Jeff on that one because, uh, you know, they, they could say it far more eloquently than I could. So what sort of performance opportunities do you have in your day-to-day -day life? It, boy, it's variable. So lately, especially moving to Minnesota, um, not as much. I've been busier and, you know, we, we don't have, especially because of COVID over the last few years, we, we did have a small group uh, that would meet here as one of the uh, SAM groups. Uh, but it's been so hard to kind of keep that together, um, you know, over the last couple of years. Um, but even right before that, um, there was uh, there were events that were hosted by either Mayo or by like the Mayo medical students that we participated in and there are other uh, fairs and things like that around the town. 
Um, I did a lot more when I was in Dallas. Um, I also had a little bit more time for some of those things back then, but I always tried, not always successfully, to find things that kind of melded both interests. Um, so two of the big uh, conferences that I used to participate in all the time back in Dallas, there were uh, one called Crimes Against Children. And I, I have a lot of interest in uh, sudden infant death, child abuse, child neglect. That's part of my subspecialty. Uh, and so this Crimes Against Children conference was a massive conference hosted in Dallas every year uh, that focused on child abuse and neglect and things like that. And uh, a good friend of mine was the one who organized that uh, conference. And so he called me one year and he said, okay, you know, opening night, we always have a big opening reception. He's like, do you want to come do magic? And I said, well, I said, I'd love to do it, but I personally don't think I am of the caliber who could do walk around magic just by myself and entertain a crowd of that many people. I said, but I tell you what I can do is ask and see how many of my magician buddies would come with me. And so we had a group of about four or five magicians that would basically descend upon the opening night of this conference for several years and, uh, and basically do strolling magic. And it was fantastic for me because it was an experience I had never had before. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, walk around was new to me, but because it was that particular conference for me, I had the best in ever. It's kind of like, um, I believe it's in one of your short stories where Eli talks about, you know, how does he walk up to a small group and, and do walk around and introduce himself? And uh, so my in wasn't necessarily like, oh, you know, Jim, the host of the meeting uh, wanted me to come do magic for you. Instead, I would walk up to a table who inevitably was law enforcement officers, prosecutors, uh, you know, child abuse nurses, whatever. And I'd say, hey, I'm Dr. Quentin from the medical examiner's uh, office. You know, welcome to Dallas. Glad you're here. Uh, I don't know if you noticed, but we have several magicians doing walk around in the room tonight just to, to kind of have fun and, you know, keep everybody at ease. And I said, and I happen to be one of them. So you want to see something. And of course, they are listening, going, oh, hey, here's, here's Doc. Here's the medical examiner. And then when I say, do you want to see a trick? They're like, wait, yeah, yeah, I want to see how that's going to work. <laughs> <laughs> He's crossing the streams. He's crossing the streams. How is he I doing like that? It. Yeah. yeah. Uh, do you uh, any um, magic heroes that you've met or maybe would want to meet? I mean, you're you're uh, certainly the names you have mentioned are people that we have either talked to or um, are familiar with. How about you? Are there uh, people that you have had a chance to to meet? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I have had so much fun meeting people. And, and the thing about the magic community is, I mean, it's amazing the way you know, all of our famous people are so, you know, willing to share their time. Um, but I would say some of the big influences for me, I've already mentioned, you know, Jeff and, and uh, Ricardo. Uh, interestingly, shortly after I moved to Dallas, Larry Haas moved to Texas with his wife, and he was up in Sherman, Texas, which was only about an hour north of us. And so he used to come to some of the meetings and, and uh, would come give lectures and stuff like that. And so uh, I bonded somewhat with Larry and, and still keep in touch with him. And he's fantastic, too. Um, I'm trying to think. Otherwise, just my magic heroes. I, I, I have a soft spot in my heart. And so does my wife for David Williamson. I mean, I've only met him once or twice. 
and uh, he wouldn't remember me from anywhere, anyone else on the planet. But I love that man so much. <laughs> you know, it's funny. We had him on last year. He's going to be on again this year. And, and Jim and I have been discussing season four. And one of the points I have on the board for what we're going to do in season four is I think we need to have David Williamson on once a year yeah. because he is so entertaining and so smart and so open which you know most of the magicians we've talked to are all those things but they're they're not david williamson yeah yeah also uh as you know uh john have uh spoken with uh joshua J a a couple of times and he's just the nicest guy on the planet too and uh it's always neat to just be able to openly speak to to people um i mean at the last magic live actually uh, that I went to, uh, my wife was with me in the dealer's room and normally she runs away pretty quickly because she doesn't want to be in the dealer's room for any reason at all. Um, but I was, I can't remember what table I was at, but I looked next to me and there was Luis Dematos and I started chatting with him and suddenly my wife materializes out of nowhere right next to me. And then she's very interested in our conversation. And I thought that was interesting. So I'm not sure who likes Luis <laughs> Well, he is charming. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I'm just wondering if is there something you're always carrying? Do you have a, what we call in the magic biz an everyday carry? I love to have a deck of cards at almost all times. Uh, I, I know you've said multiple times that the only one you perform is Boyave, yeah. and I still love Boyave. I, I do almost always keep that in a back pocket just in case. I'm trying to think, um, I have several card tricks that I will bounce back and forth through depending on the situation. And some of them are impromptu and some of them require some setup. But um, I think at all times, if you, if you just grab me off of the street, I'm going to have probably Boyave and a deck of cards on me. Yeah. Uh, if it's okay with you, I'll include the video link of you uh, on YouTube performing on a, uh, a video podcast in Texas where you did a couple tricks, one, including a great story about your son. I, I am happy for you to post it. I, I I think I told you when we first started talking about this interview that I feel like I'm the the one kid that's not like all the others. So I you know I don't want to set up people to expect they're going to see a, uh, a you know Joshua J moment, but uh, you're more than welcome to post it. No, th those are two those are two great tricks, and everybody we've had on the show has been someone who's not like the other. So, uh, and again, I'll say. You're one of two out of 50 people who have an actual grown-up job. So uh, you 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 win in that regard. Absolutely. Not that it's about winning. No, or <laughs> losing. Do you, do you, are there any that you are just sick of performing that you don't do anymore? Or that you uh, maybe people request and you go, oh, I don't want to do that one. Man, that's a great question. Um no, I don't think so. Simply because, you know, early on, as you kind of dabble in lots of different things, you learn pretty quickly what you gravitate towards and what you don't. And uh, I always just kind of gravitated towards cards. I'm much more of a card person than I would be like coins or anything else. Um, but gosh, I, I think there are still things that I will perform occasionally just, in, you know, impromptu around friends or whatever that I learned out of that very first magic book I bought when I was in med school. You know, it's just, uh, I, I, I love to read about new tricks all the time, but I always circle right back around to, to the things I'm most familiar with. I, I think one of the ones I love the most to do in a crowd is, uh, uh, going back to Eugene Berger, um, his, he had one called cutting tens where it, he would basically have everyone cut the deck 
And, uh, you know, at the end, everyone cut to one of the tens, um, you know, out of the deck. And I, I still love doing that because you get so many people uh, to interact with that. And funny, uh, we have not mentioned Eugene in this podcast up to this point, uh, and he is sort of the godfather of this podcast. So if you are listening, it's time to do your shot because Eugene's name came up again. Did you ever get a chance to meet him? Yes, actually, he came a couple of times uh, to Dallas or to Sherman uh, because of things that Larry was hosting. And uh, uh, one of the things we had when we were trying to do the Young Magicians Club in Dallas years ago uh, we talked to to Larry because he had an event going on up in Sherman where he was bringing in Eugene and Jeff. And so we said, hey, if if y'all are going to be in town, is there any way we might be able to get you to do something with the young magicians? And so sort of I won't say impromptu because we had to, to organize it, but they came on their next day free and you know didn't charge anything to come and basically the Young Magicians Club got to see Larry, Eugene, and Jeff oh. all in one afternoon. I mean, it was amazing. Days you will never forget. Yeah. Uh, that's fantastic. So you're now in Minnesota. You're at the, the Mayo Clinic. Um, you've got your family. You're raising your kids. Are you here for a while? Oh, yes. We absolutely love it. And, and you know, everybody thought, why would you move from Texas up to Minnesota? And, you know, and to be honest, I, I had never lived anywhere that had snow before. So this, we moved during the Christmas break four years ago uh, and immediately just got thrown into all of that. So it was, you know, the hot run of snow boots, snow, you know, snow blower, snow tires, everything to, to try to learn it very quickly. But we love it here. I have no intention of going anywhere. That's fantastic. So what is your magic goal right now? What's the next thing you want to achieve as a magician? Boy, what a great question. So one of the things, well, just personally, I'd love uh, now that COVID has kind of, you know, I won't say gone away, but, you know, it's it's not affecting us anymore like it was. Uh, I know several of us are really excited about trying to get our local group back together so that we have some people to bounce stuff off of. So that's one magic goal. Um Two other magic goals for me. Um, one is we we have a program that we do for our trainees, uh, for all the residents and stuff like that, where we'll different people will put on different like wellness events. They have it's like the few events we do that have nothing to do with medicine, and so uh, we're actually next month we're going to put on a wellness event, which will be a magic workshop where we're going to let up to 10 of the residents uh, sign up for this workshop and kind of do like a, a teaching session with them to kind of introduce them to magic. So that I'm really looking forward to that. I think that'll be fun. And uh, yeah, those are the big things right now. That's great. Hey, everybody, this is John. I'm just cutting into the interview. We were having a great conversation with Reed. We stopped recording. We were chatting and then he started telling a story and we went, hold on, hold on. Let's hit the record button again. And so we did. So just to give you a little background. So I moved here um, the very end of 2018 and started my job here at the very beginning of 2019. About nine months into my job here, uh, I had been having probably for several years um, 
progressive headaches, which I figured were just, you know, as a doctor, you know, you always self-diagnose. So I'm like, ah, oh, it's just stress. It's too much caffeine. It's this, that, the other thing. And so, you know, after a while, you, you know, I've like cut all my caffeine. I've moved to a much less stressful job. I've done all these things. And yet I've still, I'm still getting progressive headaches. And my wife, you know, keeps yelling at me to say, you really ought to go see a doctor. I'm like, yeah, okay, fine. So I finally go. And the doc goes, you know, everything looks fine, but we'll go ahead and do an MRI. You know, it's, we're not going to see anything, but, you know, we're just going to do it to make sure it's okay. So I do that. That night I get a phone call from the radiologist and he's like, you need to go to the hospital right now. Oh. Why? <laughs> and he says, you have what's called a colloid cyst in your ventricles. So in the middle of your brain that is blocking your cerebrospinal fluid. So your brain is swelling up and that's why you're having the headaches. I said, well, do I need to go right away? And he says, well, you're still talking to me, which makes me feel good, but yeah, you need to go right away. <laughs> so it turned out that for probably years, this small little benign lesion, which just happened to be in a perfectly wrong spot was causing my brain to swell. And so I get, I go in, next thing you know, I'm in Mayo Clinic, you know, since I work here, next thing you know, I'm in surgery, neurosurgery, which is something I never expected to have. Now, why do I bring all this up? I bring it up because I get out of surgery the next morning, once I'm like cognitive enough to be able to like talk to people, I text some of my buddies from back in Dallas. And I'm like, you're not gonna believe what happened to me. And one of my good magician friends, Mike McElroy, who's back in Dallas, sends me an email and he says, well, you're going to be laid up for a while. So I wanted you to listen to this audiobook, and it's the ambitious card. So, so I, I hate to tell you this, Jim, especially, you know, you were the one who got me through my brain surgery recovery because I listened to your first narration of the first book. Wow. Uh, after my surgery. So that's that I, I credit you for my my well-being and my quick recovery. Well, I'm just thrilled to hear that. Aren't you, John? That's fantastic. That, that certainly, certainly that I read all the other books. And then, of course, once you listen to one, your, your voices, that's it. They're in my head now. You know, so no matter if I read them or listen to them, I'm always going to hear those voices. So so thank oh, you. Awesome. <laughs> that's an awesome story. That may be the best we could we could. Stop doing the podcast now, because it's not going to get any better than that. Yeah, but we told people we're coming back. I, right. I don't want to lie all to right. people. Well, all right, okay, but I'm just saying this wow. would be this would be the place to stop if we wanted to. That was great. Well, I for one am thrilled that we turned the recorder back on. Absolutely, uh, behind the page, the Eli Marks podcast, saving lives. That uh, it should, uh, we should now just put that on there as well. Is that what you heard? Did you hear saving lives? I did hear that. I heard kept me from being entirely bored. Oh, well, but I don't think saving, I don't think there's any life saving involved. You know, uh, I think in terms of marketing, though, uh, the Eli Marks Behind the Page podcast, Saving Lives, is better than the Eli Marks podcast Behind the Page will keep you from complete boredom. I, I think. Of the two, I know which way I would lean as a, as a semi-professional marketer. Let's run a quick uh, test market on that in Erie and see which one floats to the top. 
Absolutely. But how, how I, I'm just was blown away by it and I'm still touched by it enough to be a little verklempt um, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and very happy uh, that it worked out that way. And what a tremendously nice man. He yeah. Is. The story about his wife saying, oh, good. I think magic will be a nice cheap hobby for you. <sighs> yes. The uh, famous last words is what that uh, it's just not doesn't turn out that way for most of us no it really doesn't in fact i think if there is someone out there who has found a way to make it a cheap hobby they should have their own podcast and explain how that's done well i think you 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 sort of oh i do not know to qualify like that you don't buy a lot of magic do you i buy a little more than i should because i look at it and go how did he how did he do that well it's only 18 dollars. i can find out how he did it for 18 dollars. there you go a secret collector yeah, I guess so. The other thing that I thought was really funny was his uh, reads figuring out that House from the TV show House would have had to go to school for 35 years. And it's also interesting to uh, I've heard that the the whole, hey, pulling the body out on the drawer and showing it to somebody doesn't That's happen. The thing. Yeah, I, I, I thought that always happened. You have to come in and identify. I thought that was just de rigueur. I, I, I just assumed that happened every time. And I guess it doesn't happen at all. Yes. Yeah. And I was, of course, delighted that one of his heroes is uh, David Williamson because... The great David Williamson. He is one of the people coming up in the rest of season three. We're halfway through. We've had a great bunch of guests so far, including Dr. Quinton. Uh, we had Matt King, my goodness, Larry Haas, Ken Weber, Jade, Alexandra de Vivier. Yeah. Uh, to, we're not, not like we're resting on our laurels here, folks, but coming up in our next episodes, we're going to chat once again with our friend and Reed's hero, David Williamson, which is great. Jay Johnson's coming up. Gordon Smooter will be here to talk about puppets and puppeteering. Bill Arnold. Bill Arnold on a podcast. Yeah, it's great. He's the co-creator of the long-running Triple Espresso, which started right here in Minnesota. He's going to talk about always being prepared to make miracles and um uh, someone else now yeah there's someone else i can't think there was somebody right on the tip of my tongue who was it man it's teller what we'll be chatting with teller folks of pen and teller fame this is uh this just in breaking news stop the press we get to talk with Teller, and Teller talks with us and our friend Michael Callahan about being a mentor. And about being, here we go, about being a Telemachus or Telemachus. I'm not sure which way you go. It's Telemachus or Telemachus. Uh, we get schooled very nicely by Teller on that. We'll have more uh, detail on that when he and Michael Callahan pop on. But as you can hear, we have a lot of great interviews coming up in the next few months not the least of which is next episode in which we have our good friend Kayla Drescher coming back because the the story we're going to listen to next episode has a little bit of bar magic in it. And Kayla is an expert at bar magic, which I learned is not the same thing as close-up magic. Yeah, I thought the two were uh, exactly the same, but obviously... Nope. When she Couldn't be more different. It, Couldn't like, be more different. Ah. Ah, of course, that's different. Yeah. And Eugene Berger, 
just in case we didn't mention him in the last couple of minutes, was uh, proficient at both close-up magic and being a bar magician. I saw him do both, and yeah. it was uh, it, it was charming. And listening to her talk about it and the way she goes about it is terrific. Yeah, she's always fun to talk to. If you're not listening to Shazam, her podcast that she started with uh, Chris Hendricks, uh, it is must-listen podcasting. Uh, she does a great job on that, and she'll be here next episode to talk to us a little bit about bar magic. So there's lots of great stuff coming, folks. Be sure to subscribe, leave us a review, and other than that, we will see you in the second half of Season 3 coming up soon. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening, folks. This has been Behind the Page, the Eli Marks podcast with your hosts, John Gaspard and Jim Cunningham, produced by Albert's Bridge Books at Grass Lake Studios. Find this podcast and all the books in the Eli Marks series at elimarksmysteries.com. That's E-L-I-M-A-R-K-S, mysteries.com. And thanks for listening. Thank you.